Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and hopefully eventually to get a job. Uh, and here I am with Craig Johnson, uh, who is also a PhD candidate uh, in history at UC Berkeley. Um, and today we are going to be talking about the history of the right wing. Um, you can follow Craig at, at history, at hist of the right. H-I-S-T. Where he sometimes uh, posts about uh, uh, current events and ties them with a larger history. Thanks very much for joining us today, Craig. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, we've been friends for a while. You're, you're actually now... Um, the 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 guest who's come on the show the most number of times. Yeah, this is, this is your third time on the it show. It is. Um, I did not need to tell. Usually, I give a spiel to people about what to expect. And Craig <laughs> does not need that spiel. Um, but we're having you on today uh, to talk about something that I still don't entirely understand about your research and uh, about history more generally, and that's like the history of the right wing. Mm-hmm. Personally, I was a little bit surprised that that's something that, that people study, but it, it, it's a topic in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that historians and academics in general have a tendency to focus on the left as a historical actor. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the stories that we tell, especially about the 19th and 20th centuries, are about, you know, the advance of human freedom and yeah. like, democracy, abolition, blah, blah, blah. Those are all left-wing stories. Yeah, like, like Martin Luther King says, the, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Exactly. And that's basically, like, that's what leftists tell each other be, when, when things go badly, because it's like it bends towards the left. Yeah, and it's not just the left. It's also liberals, like classic liberals, also yeah. think the same thing, you know, that, that the arc of history bends towards progress or whatever, right? Well, unpack that a little bit for, for me, because I don't... Like, what's the difference between a lefty and a classic liberal? Yeah, so so probably the biggest and easiest way to define it would be that, that somebody who's a leftist comes from a tradition that emerges out of, like, socialist and communist tendencies in continental Europe in the 19th century, some of which were Marxist and others weren't. Yeah. Um, so this would be anybody from... Bernie Sanders to AOC in Congress uh, to many of the ruling parties in much of Europe and the rest of the world. Um, whereas classic liberals are, you know, like the classic example, it would be somebody like Adam Smith. But also like, you know, if we're talking about like what would what we would define as centrists in the United States fall more under this kind of rubric, like they believe in individual freedom. They believe in free market. They believe in capitalism. They believe in liberty but they really like property that sort of thing like like like, so a left idea is medicare for all a liberal idea is like giving people access to health care through particular kinds of markets yeah yeah i mean is that like yeah, a, yeah I, that, I know that's a character yeah yeah i mean like that might be a good gloss definitely okay, okay. Mm-hmm. so we have but but so the, the when we understand history especially over the past 200 years it's really been a story of the left and of liberalism. Yeah, the story we tell ourselves about the last 200 years is the triumph of the left or the triumph of liberalism. Yeah, and from that perspective, like, when I think about the stuff that I've learned about political history, the right is is either not there or it's kind of portrayed as, like, dumb. The right is is usually, like, the also-ran. The right is the enemy. The right is, you know, they're literally the evil empire in Star Wars. They exist to be overthrown yeah like, like 19 I, I i know a lot about the 19th century and i can like point to a lot of liberal and left thinkers mm-hmm. adam smith you mentioned also jeremy bentham yeah. uh marx Engels, uh uh f- f- like lots of those weird anarchists and and, and socialists yeah I, I can probably name two right wingers yeah yeah they're not nearly as famous um they're not nearly as widely read you know if you attended a college where they made you read you know the quote great books probably you didn't read any conservative thinkers maybe you got some schmidt you might have carl schmidt. carl schmidt yeah carl schmidt uh, give us a brief boss uh, uh carl schmidt was a uh was a prominent conservative german jurist uh, in the early 20th century he's uh his, his, he's most famous as being the, quote, Nazi intellectual. Okay. Yeah. So, But he's also a political theorist in his own right. And, yeah. And 
has some interesting ideas. Yeah. Okay. So, so the history of the right is something that people have tended not to study. Exactly. So let's just give a give a little biography of the right wing. Mm-hmm. Like, when can we say it starts? Yeah. So both the right and the left as political concepts uh, emerged literally from the French Revolution, um, from the Assembly, uh, from the Revolutionary Assembly. People of one political tendency sat on the left side of the chamber and people of a different one sat on the right side of the chamber. Really? That is the literal origin of the term left and right. Okay, so we have this, like, the French Revolution's a big moment. What 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 makes it important? Why do people keep on, like, mm-hmm. when I talk to historians who, who study politics, like, it seems like nothing happens and then there's the French Revolution. Yeah. Things suddenly start happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, obviously all of these things have much longer trajectories and, like, you know, you could get into that uh, yeah. off into the weeds and forever. But the French Revolution is, is the thing that most people... Like, especially in the 19th and 20th century, that kind of like people that you read, they look back on this and they see it as a moment when people got together and started to think about like, okay, we're going to construct a new world. What kind of world is it going to be? Mm. So what sort of, what, what were some, just, just tell me some of the questions that they were thinking about. Like the mm. big, there's a big one, right? Like, what should we do with, should we have a king? Yeah. Should we have a king? The revolution answer is no. Um, and but, the answer with the guillotine. Yeah, 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 yeah. The answer is we'll kill the king with the crown on his head. Yeah. Not, not, not. Let's get a different king or something, but like let's end the monarchy. Yeah. And I mean that's that's. I just want to like hover on that for a moment because that shows some of the stakes of the decisions that people are making during this time. Exactly. Like how should we, these these questions of how should we should order ourselves? Like what what should we do? How are we going to make a new world? Mm-hmm. They can seem a little airy fairy. But like the questions were, who's going to rule us and what are we going to do with the old person? And the answer was, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him and we're going to kill his children. We're going to kill his wife. We're going to kill everybody in his family. Yeah. Is the answer. Yeah. Um, which is a pretty radical break, right? Um, so what, what were some of the other so some of the, questions? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so some of the other questions would be like, what's the relationship between the church and society? Um, oh, yeah. Is the church officially sanctioned by the state? Does the church get to control education? Yeah. Does the church get to keep records? Because, you know, in the 18th century, who kept the census? There was no, I mean, there was no, like, quote, census, but, like, who would you go to if you needed a list of the people who lived in a place? The, church, so you, the, church, you'd the go, parish. You'd go to the parish. Yeah. And if, you need, if a person needed help, they'd go to the parish if church. You needed, like marriage was not a state sanctioned institution or to really? the extent that it well to the extent that it was it was because the church was like a sort of like appendage of the state um, in so, a lot of places so if you were in France like to get married you'd have to go to the church you wouldn't yeah, like, I mean, the sign. Church, like the church would be the thing that does marriage okay so but that was one of these things that was on the table it was on the table yeah yeah like and that's sort of like that has like very practical implications like who do you go to to get married and like who do you go to if you've, you know, lost your arm or something, or like how how do you handle funerals? But it also it's also, it's also like big metaphysical questions, like what is the nature of reality? Yeah, who gets to determine the nature of reality? Well, well and who is us? Who is us? Like who's are, who's in and out? Who's in and out? Are we the sort of people who all go to the parish church, or are we the sort of people who are all? You know, I don't know, Frenchman something. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Um, Is there, are there any other big, big things that are, I yeah, mean, I know that there's a yeah, ton yeah, of stuff yeah, that's a, going there's on. There's a ton of big things, but, 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 but another thing that we'd be remiss to, to, to avoid is like the question about the, the people, the populace. Yeah. What do you do with the lower classes? Yeah. What do you do with the peasantry? People who are struggling because of changes in the economy, people who are struggling um, because of wars. What, what do you do about increasingly modern low class lower class life yeah um which had been changing significantly since the late middle ages uh, to be something much more like what we would recognize today poor urban dwellers or underemployed agricultural workers and and what do those people do what's their relationship to society does society have an obligation to them yeah and if it does how are they going to be taken care of are they poor because they are uh there's something wrong with them yeah. or are they poor because we as a society have, 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 have made some sort of failing. Yeah. And what, what, what duties do we have? to Exactly. Exactly. And just to like, one of the big things that was, I think on the table in the French revolution that, that really kicked it off was the relationship between the classes. Exactly. You know, before the French revolution in France, 
there were different kinds of nobility, like uh, uh, nobles of, of, of the sword and of the pen, who mm-hmm. had actual rights that were different from everybody else. Like, yeah. if you were a certain kind of noble, you wouldn't have to pay certain taxes, exactly. which was a big deal. And one of the big things that came out of, of the French Revolution was this idea that everybody's going to have equal rights under the law. Yeah. Um, that, that, that we might have distinctions in, in uh, our uh, uh, chances in life. We might have distinctions in how much money we get. We might have distinctions about where we go to school, but we're not going to have distinctions, like juridical distinctions. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I personally yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's sort of like the claim of what people generally call classic liberalism. Okay. Is that like it's, it's juridical, legal, official, formal equality. Like there are no longer going to be different kinds of people, although they did maintain different kinds of people based upon race and gender. But there will no longer be different kinds of men. men. <laughs> okay, so so we have all these questions burbling in the French Revolution. Tell me about the right wing, because mm-hmm. my, my sense of what happens is that it's there might have been some debate, but it pr- went pretty quickly to the chop off the heads close the churches, yes. that, that all of the solutions that they went for, at least for the first 10 or so years, were all on the left-wing side. Yeah, so so the, the left and the more radical factions of the revolution in France were broadly successful. Yeah. Um, the French Revolution is an interesting place to start the history of the right, even though that, that is where it starts. Um, because the right wing in France at the time, what, what, we, would, what we would call the right wing now, uh, was monarchist broadly. Yeah. Um, and monarchism is an aspect of conservative or right wing politics that's largely gone today. Um, but a lot of what emerges as the right wing has its origins like like way back in the day in what in what in what we would call monarchism i, I mean some of the 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 uh, trump trolls uh at least during the election were were calling trump the god king oh yeah i'm i mean like partly as a joke but but like also like like the concept of like a leader who deserves his power mm. uh by the nature of the person that he is you know who demonstrates it who possibly has a direct connection to some metaphysical truth yeah. the nation or god it's god himself yeah i mean like that's monarchism right so during the french revolution the right these monarchists they were in some way sidelined did they stick did they stick around were they still talking were there were there right wingers in the right side of the french assembly for like the entire french revolution uh they stick around but yeah they're 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 sidelined in the like re- in the quote revolutionary period okay um if you know your history and if you're a French historian or French or whatever, please, my deepest apologies for this for the following <laughs> sentence. Uh, um, in the decades immediately following the revolution, uh, we see the failure of the more radical aspects of the revolution. Yeah. Uh, so their attempts to completely reorganize society are broadly rejected. Uh, the monarchy is restored. Um, various popular uprisings are quashed. Um, the empire, the French empire under Napoleon emerges. Um so throughout the early 20th century, we see sort of a return to the conservative side of things. Are we going to talk about 20th or 19th? Should we talk? Can we talk a little bit about the 19th century? Yeah, definitely. Like, like what happened? So, so I want to get to the 20th century story. But yeah, but, yeah. So in France, at least, we have a failure of the revolution mm-hmm. and monarchy starts to step to the fore. Yeah. But tell me how how that idea of the right goes beyond France. Like why does why do we like like mm-hmm. like what happens in Europe and in the rest of the world to, to in the 19th century to get that idea out there? Yeah, so the concept of the right comes to be applied to political tendencies that had existed elsewhere. Yeah. Um and also the bubbling out of the French Revolution, the sort of like ideological spread of these different political tendencies and possibilities. Uh, the French Revolution comes to sort of be like a, like a template on which a bunch of other political ideas are put. Yeah. Um, and the con- the contemporary concept of the left and the right is a perfect example of this. It's a template that comes to us from the French Revolution, uh, but you kind of wouldn't know that if you just heard the words left and right today. Yeah. Um, so another example of this potentially in a, in a different context um, would be, you know, the... Um, political wranglings in Germany over unification. Like, hmm. how is Germany going to be unified? Is it going to be unified under a king? If so, who? Um, 
Is it going to be under a is, is there going to be a form of political republic or not? Um, what kind of emperor is there going to be? Are we going to bring back the Holy Roman Empire? Is it going to be a real empire? Is it going to be Catholic? Is it going to be Protestant? Okay, so 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 the French Revolution gives people in Europe, especially, a map to understand some of the big changes that are happening in Yeah, it becomes the map that people understand those things. And and they start to slot in their experiences on the ground into these patterns that they see forming in the French Revolution, which includes left and right. Yeah. And the example you gave was in, in the unification of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I thought that Germany was always around. Like, what's what what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, why does it need to be unified? Like, so, so so before the 19th century, before the late 19th century, um, the place that we now call Germany was more of a it was like a cultural field. It was like multiple different polities, like different little monarchies and little tiny republics that like had sovereignty in their borders. And if somebody said they were German, it was like an ethnic or linguistic identity. It wasn't a political identity. I know this from from my own work and from a personal connection. So the king of of, of Britain in uh, mm-hmm. uh, 1715 is a German guy, but he's not from a place called Germany. He's from the electorate of Hanover. Exactly. Which is a electorate of the Holy Roman Empire and the guy becomes both king of Hanover and of England. Exactly. Um, and personally, uh, my, my, the mom's side of my family, my, my, my maternal grandmother, uh, comes from, um, Estonia and they were Jewish German speaking Estonians who lived in, in cities and they would have thought of themselves as German at some point. Mm-hmm. Because they live, they spoke German yeah. all the way up in Estonia. So there's kind of this blob of, of German-speaking places mm-hmm. who might have done the same cultural things like read Goethe and live in cities and, and I don't know what else German people do. Yeah, and I mean... Uh, Eat bacon, uh, probably. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and this is not unique to Germans. Uh, another good example would be, it, would be Italians. Uh, another good example would be Italians. Um, Ital- Italy was not politically unified either. People who would have maybe culturally or linguistically identified as Italian uh, lived in various places in Europe, uh, including um, in the Balkans. And they didn't even have the same language. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then there would be people who would live in what we would call today Italy, like, for example, Sicily or Napoli, uh, who would not have identified as Italian necessarily. OK. So so there are a bunch of these these questions that are bubbling up, some about the formation of the nation. We have mm-hmm. Italy and we have we have uh, uh, Germany as your examples. Um, but there's a big thing that's happened in the 19th century that you're skirting around, which is a little friend called Karl Marx. That's right. How does how does this new form of 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 uh, of leftiness mm-hmm. um, start to define the right in the 19th century? Yeah. So or does it? Am I wrong in thinking that that, that that's like a key? Uh, uh, actor in, in, in this story. Yeah, so usually the story that we tell about the right is as a reaction to the left. Um, this is where the concept counter-revolutionary comes in. Uh, the right wing is a counter to the revolution, right? And you had actual revolutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there they, they were, they were massive, massive, huge, crazy revolutions. Like people ripping up pavements from in Paris and mm-hmm, throwing mm-hmm. them at people and stuff. Exactly. Making so, barricades. Yeah. So Karl Marx is, uh, he starts out as, you know, one of many sort of dissident political actors and like journalists and agitators uh, who ends up getting exiled because of his political agitation uh, in what would become Germany. Uh, In 1848, he's exiled to England, um, where he spends the remainder of his life. um, Hangs out in the British Library. As an academic. Yeah. Yeah. Basically as as an itinerant academic and Freelancer would probably be what we call him today. There, there's a, a a great essay I think called Marx's Overcoat, talking about <laughs> Marx, uh, uh, how 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 Marx uh, 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 fed his family by pawning his overcoat sometimes, and they buy it back. It's a, it's 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 interesting. Okay, so so we have we have Marx who's coming up with some new ideas about about some of the same questions that the people of the French Revolution had. Yeah. What are we to do? Uh, 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 to one another. How mm-hmm. are we to explain um, success and poverty? And Marx had a very powerful and radical answer, which yes. we probably don't need to belabor. What was the powerful and radical answer of the right at this time? Yeah, and so it's actually really helpful to come at this question from the lens of talking about Karl Marx, 
um, because Karl Marx, uh, in addition to writing Capital, Das Kapital, and um, and uh, the Communist Manifesto, probably the next most important thing that he ever wrote is a little book called The 18th Brumaire of Louis-Napoleon. Okay, I hear people drop this. I don't know what a Brumaire is, and yeah. I like know who Napoleon is, but I don't know who Louis-Napoleon is. Okay, so The 18th Brumaire is a date in the French Revolutionary calendar. Okay, so it's not there were, like there were 17 other Brumaires? No, there weren't 17 other Brumaires. Okay. The 18th Brumaire is a date in the French Revolutionary calendar, um, and Louis-Napoleon is the uh, nephew of Napoleon I. Uh, the 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 actual like the Napoleon that you think of the like little okay. the little general that guy yeah um, so after Napoleon the first is exiled and his son briefly becomes the emperor that's why he's Napoleon the second um, there's this period of upheaval in French politics where they you know the monarchy comes back the republic comes back the monarchy comes back there's revolution the monarchy comes back under a different house blah 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 again my apologies yeah yeah okay. well to all french historians this is the part of french history that 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 us non-french historians <laughs> just completely stop paying attention to yes. yeah. anyway um then uh in the mid 19th century the republic comes back okay um and who sits for the election of as president of France but this guy, Louis Napoleon, who is related to the emperor. Yeah. Um, and so the people who supported the old Bonapartist um, governments, like the old French Empire, and old by, they were talking like 30 years ago, um, they support him. And he wins. He wins this presidential election. Okay, and th there's something there's something ironic about this, right? We have we have a refounding of the of, of the republic. Like if we think of this as a bunch of ideas fighting, this is idea like like the victory of of liberalism mm -hmm. and democracy mm -hmm. in France. It's saying like, look, we are not going to take the monarchist uh, path anymore. Exactly. But then the person who wins is a person who wins by dint of their relation to the old emperor. And also, yeah. he's a bit of an idiot, right? Oh, yeah. Louis-Napoleon is is sort of, like, famously perceived as being, like, a... a like, yeah, like a fool. Yeah. Um, uh, 18th Brumaire, the text that, that Marx wrote, is is where the phrase, first is tragedy, then is farce, comes from. The tragedy first the, is... The tragedy Napoleon. being Napoleon the first. Yeah. The, the farce being that... Louis Napoleon is elected as the president of France, and then in a few months, the Republic falls. What? The Republican coalition dissolves, and Louis Napoleon crowns himself emperor of the Second French Empire as Napoleon III. That is insane. That, like, just to imagine that, that's like we had an election here, um, and like, you know, Trump the fifth runs. Uh, gets elected, and then everything falls apart, and the solution is to crown him king. And people liked it. They liked that's the crazy. So they yeah. liked it. A lot of people were on his side. I mean, I mean, this might just be my my bias as a lefty who who's lived in you know universities for my whole life. But when we talk about this sort of thing, it feels like the 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 real grassroots energy is on the left. It's the people exactly. ripping up the paving stones of Paris to make the Paris Commune. But here you have like this reactionary, dumb, like monster of a of a well everybody's a monster but there's this reactionary dumb right winger and people like it yeah so again yeah 18th Brumaire is where the concept of reactionary as we use it today largely comes from okay um it's also the it's also where bonapartist if you've ever heard that to describe political tendencies comes from anyway um well so yeah well tell us a, tell me a little bit about what this guy means because i've yeah. said i've talked a lot of smack about him yeah. we say that people like him like let's Re rehabilitated as, a, as, mm -hmm. a, as, as an intellectual idea. Like, so what, 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 is, what does he offer to people? So part of what he offers is a return to imperial grandeur, mm. uh, which is one of the big promises that the right wing gives in general. A make return, France great again. A return to former grandeur, yes. Yeah. Literally make France great again. Yeah. Um, he also promises and has a more direct relationship um, between himself and the other political elites and... Um, and what Marx calls in this essay the lumpen proletariat, the downtrodden, the underclass, uh, people who aren't doing so well. So in the contemporary United States, we're talking Joe the Plumber. Okay. 
Okay, so this is this is an example of this coalition between Joe the Plumber types and a, 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 a an elite who's coming and saying that they that they represent them. Yeah, uh, it's also directly connected to the military. Yeah. Um, uh, which is sort of another can of worms that we don't necessarily need to get into right now. Um, but yeah, in the 19th century, Marx talks about this coalition that Louis Napoleon as Napoleon III develops, uh, which basically consists of some dissident intellectuals, uh, peasants, and the sort of like disaffected urban underclass. Yeah. Okay, so we have we have this kind of thing bubbling up. Should we move on to the to the twentieth century? Or yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so what? So what? Tell me a little bit about the how this right wing movement comes uh, uh, to, uh, does stuff in the twentieth century. Because usually when I think of the right in history in the twentieth century, I think of fascism mm-hmm. and I think of like Reagan. Yeah, like I know that's not the whole story. So so fill fill me in a little bit. Yeah. So. Um... Again, I think that a good frame to to sort of like a good rough and ready frame to approach this stuff on is the same one that that, that Marx offers in 18th Brumaire. Uh, we have these moments of republicanism mm-hmm. that fail because of their own internal conflicts. Small R republicanism. Small R republicanism. Yeah. 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 Which, give, give it another word so that we don't get that um, interference. Like, yeah, just like, you know, sort of like um, we have we have these moments of liberal democracy. Yeah. Are broadly conceived. Right. Um that fail because of their own internal problems. You yeah. Know? Uh, they don't actually represent the interests of people. Or maybe there's a big bad war uh, that either you win or you lose that can still have serious consequences. Maybe there's a big economic downturn. Or maybe the economy just can't work in the, in the way that people yeah, expect it Maybe the economy is just changing. Yeah. And it leaves a bunch of people behind. People want to be peasants and farmland and the... But, you know, you don't need that many peasants. Yeah, and now we have, you know, uh, combine industrial production yeah. or something. Yeah. Anyway, we have, all, so you end up with all of these questions, and they're the same questions that the French Revolution was about. Who is in the nation and who isn't? Yeah. What is the obligation of society to people who aren't doing so hot? Yeah. Um, what does justice mean? Who should be ruling society? What, what's the relationship between us and the church? Exactly. Yeah. What's the relationship between the, the material and the divine? It's another big one. I mean, we have the, this is debate that is happening right now. A lot on the right. Uh, uh, f- the, the Ilhan Omar controversy exactly. seems to be as much about what she said and about policy towards uh, 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 Israel as it is about whether it's right to have a Muslim woman in a hijab in the House of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 the thing to know about this is that the we usually think about left responses to these questions. Like, oh, you should spend more money and help the poor. Yeah. Or you should let people in to be citizens. Yeah. Or you should not have big, stupid, expensive wars. Yeah. Or you should abolish slavery or whatever. But the thing to remember is that the right wing had, like, that the right wing is not just opposed to all of those things. The right wing also has its own internally coherent answers to these questions. Yeah. That are positive, positive in that they're not just reactions to things, they're about things that the right wants. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how that, do Mm -hmm. do we have practical stories of that in the 20th century, or do we want to take a, a bigger, uh, more holistic view of what that positive project is. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are some particular examples, um, but probably I think that yeah, talk, talking about it in sort of general sense might be the, the, the place to start. Um, so, by the twentieth century, in many cases, where monarchies are gone, they're not going to be coming back. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, one one place to start, for example, one place to look at this conflict might be um, against small R Republican Spain. Um, so Spain loses a big war to the United States in the late 19th century. We take the Philippines, take the Philippines, take Cuba, take Puerto Rico. Yeah, take a bun- take basically the remainder of their colonial possessions. Yeah, um, Spain is humiliated. A lot of people are dead. The economy isn't doing so well anymore because they aren't getting these taxes. Yeah, yeah. And so out of these social conflicts and questions, uh, there emerge various political movements trying to answer these questions. Like, what are we going to do now? What, is, what does it mean to be a Spaniard anymore? Yeah. Um, what should Spain be? 
Should it be a republic? Should it be a monarchy? Blah, 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 blah. By the 1920s and 30s, Spain has become a republic. It's a relatively liberal republic. Um, it's pretty progressive in a lot of senses. Because they don't have a king anymore. They don't have a king anymore. Yeah. Um, the king is gone. But then we get the Spanish Civil War, which is another one of these sort of like crucibles that sort of like helps define the positions of the left and right in the same way that the French Revolution did in the previous century. Um, so the left, one side of the Spanish Civil War is a coalition of classic liberals and the Marxian left and anarchism. Which you might read about in George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. Exactly. Which is a great book. It's an excellent book. Yeah. The other side of the Civil War is another coalition. Yeah. So we got a left coalition. Uh, that kind of coalition is usually called a popular unity um, coalition. Um, and then we have a right-wing coalition, which usually, which doesn't have a sort of like pithy name, which is unfortunate because it's extremely common. Um, it's a coalition among the more conservative branches of the military, um, existing monarchists, um, conservative Catholics or conservative church members, um, and fascists. I mean, I know vaguely about this coalition because I know Franco. Mm -hmm. I don't know Franco's first name. I don't know what happens to him. Francisco Franco, okay. Mm -hmm. But I know that he was involved in the Spanish Civil War, and he I, I think he's a fascist. And the other thing I know about the Spanish Civil War is the Guernica painting. Yes. Which I taught in History 5, which is our introduction to European history here at Cal. Um, and Guernica was one of the first cities to have uh, civilians bombed by air. Yes. Um, and that was why it was famous at the time. But now it's famous because Pablo Picasso painted a, 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 a big picture of it that now hangs in the UN as... I guess like a reminder that war is bad. Yes. Right. Those are the two things I know about this side of 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 this important struggle. I know mm -hmm. a lot more about the left. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about what unites them and and and, and how they mm -hmm. how they're making this positive project. Because in my mind, they are the empire from 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 Star Wars. They're yeah. just a bunch of jackbooted thugs who are like dumb mm -hmm. and bad and 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 who the 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 judgment of history frowns upon. Yeah. So. That is the left perspective on them, and that has become the dominant perspective on most of these kinds of coalitions. Uh, incidentally, uh, the Nazi party in Germany and the Italian fascist party also took power in a similar coalition initially. Um, so that's the frame that you should approach understanding fascism from, is thinking about it as part of a coalition. Yeah, but I, I mean, even that, but that's, it, that's huge, mm -hmm. because I think, yeah. in, 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 in my imagination, it's not that there's, like, a coalition of different sides exactly. who are making compromise with each other, but that, like, an evil spirit goes into, like, exactly. the entire country, and they all start to lock each other up. Yeah. Instead of thinking about fascism as this sort of, like, like a nation gets possessed by some evil spirit and starts doing terrible stuff. Instead, think about fascism as a political ideology with political movements comprised of people who wanted stuff. They yeah. wanted things. Yeah. In the case of this coalition in the Spanish Civil War, they wanted, some of them wanted the return of the king. The monarchists wanted that. A lot of them wanted the church to be in charge of education again. A lot of them wanted the church to be in charge of a lot of the things that the church used to be in charge of, like marriage licenses and and, and again, and this is the, the census and things. These are these are answers to questions that were beginning to be posed during yeah. the French Revolution, yeah. and and they're very practical questions. Yeah. Like you know, imagine if when you wanted a marriage license, you literally had to petition a priest to allow you to do it instead of just going to some bureaucrat who will stamp it just because you're two adults of allowable age. Um, I mean, anybody who's gotten married has faced this, that there's two different systems. You exactly. do just go to a state office and like sign a paper. But if you get a priest or a rabbi or some sort mm -hmm. of officiant, often they will work with you and quiz you. And they're yeah. meant to kind of vet you to see whether you can and should be married. And of course, the vestiges of this, in even in the civil system, is, you know, the prohibitions against homosexual marriage, for example. Yeah. In any case, other things that this right-wing coalition wanted are... They had their own answers to what do you do about the poor? What yeah. do you do about the downtrodden? Yeah. Um, and their answers varied like the answers on the left coalition did. You know, the communists say abolish private property. 
the sort of more milk toast classic liberals were just like, hey, you know, the free market will probably solve things and maybe we'll like have a pension system or whatever. The right coalition, they have various answers. The fascists are like, hey, we should completely reorganize the economy along this like crazy hypothetical medieval corporatist system. I mean, that's I mean, I, I, I want to point out how weird that is to our contemporary understandings of the right, because from you know, growing up in the 80s, I think of of, of of the right in America as the party of laissez-faire. Yeah, we think about the right as being exclusively free market, when in reality, just like the left has various positions on the market, the right has various positions on the market. And here's here's a proposal to, to answer that problem of what we owe to each other and what mm-hmm. to do with the downtrodden and how to d- divide up the, the, the benefits of the economy. And the right has a really radical yeah. uh, answer. Yeah, some of them have a really radical answer and some of them... Yeah, some of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So some of them have a radical answer and some of them don't. You know, some of them have a sort of more laissez-faire answer to this question. Like, hey, yeah, we should have markets and maybe not so much a pension system. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a variety... Are there any other interesting economic answers during, during the Spanish Civil War? So we have the fascists, we have kind of like more milquetoast laissez-faire. Are there any others that are interesting? Um, well, the other interesting thing to, to keep in mind about the Spanish Civil War is that it's also a site where uh, big geopolitical rivalries played out. Um, so we see what would become the Axis um, aiding this right-wing coalition, yeah. the Franquista coalition. Um, and we see part of what would become the Allies, specifically the Soviet Union, um, aiding the broadly left-slash-smaller Republican coalition. Um, although they're not as good about it, um, they give less and they give specifically to the Stalinist Communist parties as opposed to giving to the coalition sort of more broadly. Okay. So, but I mean, this is this is really interesting because we see the beginning of what will dominate the global history, like the the geopolitics of the 20th century, which is a lot of big powers intervening Mm -hmm. local ideological struggles. Yeah, this is a a big, good example of a proxy war. Like, this is Vietnam 1.0, Yeah, to to, to make it really really crude. Okay, so so this is an example of how this this struggle between the left and right is playing out in the Mm -hmm. 20th century, and how the right specifically is coming to see itself. It's it's a little bit hard, you know, for me to understand them, to understand the right wing is not something unimaginable as something with a po- with a positive message. Yeah, that's the real challenge of right-wing studies as a discipline. Um, partly because frankly most academics are not right-wing um, as I myself am not. Um, and partly because the right-wing relatively unlike the left is broadly anti-intellectual. Yeah. Um, whereas a country ruled by Marxists will literally have, you know, presidents putting out political treatises like like, um, you know, the the president of China writes political treatises and people read them because he is an academic because he's a Marxian academic and he had to be. Yeah. Stalin wrote important political documents like of political. Lenin, Lenin wrote 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 books that, 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 you know, you go to a lefty's house and you'll see Stalin's still what is there. to be done, like yeah, on, still on, still on the bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler didn't do that. Mussolini, well, Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf, yeah. Hitler wrote a memoir. Yeah. Hitler wrote like a politicized memoir. And Mussolini ghost wrote like, uh, what is what is it? What is fascism? Yeah. Yeah. He ghost wrote something. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are things. And there, yeah. were the, there were the, the, the Italian futurists who, yes. who are wild. Yeah. The Italian futurists are, are an interesting example here. Um, but this means that like, whereas there's... There's just like reams and reams and reams of documents about arguments on the left about like, oh, what is the left? What do we want? Blah, blah, blah. The right wing doesn't produce quite so much of this. Yeah. Um, And so figuring out what their political theory is, is less of just like, hey, reading about what their arguments about what their political theory are and more of thinking like, okay, well, what do these people say in their speeches? Uh, What do they do in government? What do they do when they're dominating their coalition? What do they mm. do when they're a junior partner? Yeah, well, can you can I know that this is going to be a big question. Mm-hmm. Answer it to the best of your abilities, but so what do they do? What if you could yeah. if you could give like a nutshell of what the right wing's like positive project is? 
Yeah, what would that be? So probably the easiest way to divide the right in the same way that we we'd previously divided the left in terms of like, oh, some people are sort of Marxian leftists and some people are, you know, your left of center liberals, small, yeah. small liberals. Um, There's some people who want to take a more radical uh, 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 approach to the problems of society mm-hmm. and others who who are more cautious. Yeah. In the same way, you could probably fast and easy divide the right wing between conservatives and the extreme right might be one name for the other people. Conservatives broadly want something like the world, you know, one, one, maybe one insulting way to think about it would be that uh, a conservative politician wants the world to look like what he thought it was when he was a kid. Um, you know, you want the economy to work the way that the economy is imagined to have worked 30 or 40 years ago. And yeah. that's independent of what year it is today. Yeah. In 1930, they wanted the economy of the 19 of the late 18th century. In 2019, they want the economy of, you know, the 1960s. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the joke right now that, 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 that some conservatives want an Archie Bunker world. Oh, yeah. And I don't know what Archie Bunker is from, but I know it's from the 50s. That it's like a black and white TV show, uh, but I mean that's the, that's the joke. Yeah, yeah, that they, that yeah. they're that they're appealing to an imaginary world where everything made sense. Maybe because they were children. Maybe yeah. because it, it's just far away and we don't remember the problems of, of of things that are further back in time. It's also an imagined world. Usually, the imagined world is one in which the nation or the people in question were more powerful than they are today. Mm. Religion has has a has a greater purchase on mm-hmm. people's hearts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, it's usually a yearning for a time when your state, like your government, um, was more powerful. Yeah. So in the United States now, we're we're looking back to the mid twentieth century when we were the only great power untouched by war. Um, yeah. In Spain, in the Spanish Civil War, the right wing was looking back to the time when they used to be an empire with a capital E. Yeah. They were the big empire. The big they, empire. They, they, I mean, look at how many countries speak Spanish. Yes. That's how big their empire was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's that 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 yearning for a, a traditional past, yearning mm-hmm. for a mythic past. That's that's a lot of what the conservative mm-hmm. movement is about. So what what about the 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 you've called them the extremist right? The or? extreme right, the far right. Uh, they have various names, uh, and you know, are the in the same way that that the left, like the left as such has a million different, you know, there's Trotskyists, there's Leninists, there's Maoists, there's social democrats, there's anarcho-libertarian, blah, 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 blah. There's a million different varieties. The extreme right is very similar. Um, so there's mo- actual existing monarchists would be included in that. Are there actual existing monarchists? Oh, yeah. Um, one of my favorite things is that um, after the dictatorship ends in Brazil in the 1980s, yeah. they have a referendum. What kind of government do we want in Brazil today in the late 20th century, do we want a republic or do we want to bring the monarchy back? And they got 10%. They got, I mean, I think that this is so silly. And then I think of, 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 of British history and lots of Commonwealth countries, uh, uh, you know, lingering political questions, whether uh, the queen should still be the head of state. Mm-hmm. Like in Australia and in Canada, the queen is still on the currency because she is the legal head of state. And, you know, if you're a crotchety, cranky lefty, you're going to, like, rile about republicanism and talk about how, like, they should vote her out. I mean, potentially the new prime minister of Great Britain will be a, will be a Republican for... When was the last time the prime minister was a Republican? I don't know anything after 1914 about <laughs> okay, British history. Okay. I, like, I barely... I, I, I'd be afraid to spell Jeremy Corbyn's name. That's how, that's how little I know. Uh, and incidentally, as a side note, uh, after the Franco dictatorship ended... Uh, when they decided what kind of government Spain is going to have, uh, they didn't try a smaller republic again because that didn't work out. They brought back the king. They brought back so so one of these far right uh, uh, groups is are monarchists. Yeah, uh, and you, me, find, you find yeah. monarchists in France. You find monarchists all over the place. And I mean that's in its way a radical and traditional solution. Yeah. Like let's return to the to the to the organization where everything made sense. Yeah. We might we get a person who's kind of divinely ordained, charismatic, a good per you know the right blood, and if we put them at the top, him at the top, yeah, everything will be fine. Exactly. Okay, so that's what, one potential yeah. answer. Uh, the other big another big one would be fascism. Okay. Um, and fascism is distinguished from other kinds of right-wing politics. 
basically in that it considers itself to be and deserves to be considered to be future-oriented. Mm. It is a revolutionary ideology. Um, the big thing to understand about fascism is that they believe that a new world needs to be made and that that new world needs to be full of new people. Mm. Uh, and how do you make those new people? Violence. Okay, because so here's a lot of the left has the same belief that the new world needs to be made and we need to make new people. And how and do you, how make, you that? make that? In part through violence on the left, yes. on the far left, yes, but also through indoctrination, yes, through educating, through educating. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big differences here between the extreme left and the extreme right would be that the left typically doesn't think of violence as uh, good by itself. Mm. The left thinks that, like, yeah, you know, sure, if I could snap my fingers and abolish the, you know, wage labor, I would do it. But a fascist would be like, oh, no, like there's something good about violence. Violence is not only good in terms of like what it does to society, but it's good for the people who are violent. Yeah. Uh, so a, a, a perfect contemporary example, uh, I hope this doesn't get you too much heat, um, uh, would be the Proud Boys. Yeah, they, their initiation ritual involves them punching each other. Yeah, and what do they do when they um, brag about their behavior in the streets? They talk about brawls that they got into. Yeah. Um, they go up to leftists and try to pick fights because they believe in violence. And that's another. this is another thing that differentiates the extreme right from conservatives, is that conservatives are perfectly fine taking power in whatever means they need to. An election, revolution, whatever. Fascists are also perfectly fine standing in elections, but they think that violence is good. Political violence is a good thing. It's good not just for the society that experiences it, for the, but for the people who perpetrate it. I mean, there is something appealing and cool about the idea of being able to go to your enemies and punch them in the face. Oh, yeah. Like, that, like you can't deny that that's something that... that I mean, that's, that's one of the big central claims here. So, so, so part of fascism... Like it, part of its organizing principles is a, is is practical that it's oriented towards violence. Yes. That it that that it thinks that that's a legitimate and and even salutary thing for a group of people to engage in. Yes. And you think of 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 Nazi street gangs, of 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 uh, uh, paramilitary groups, mm -hmm. um, uh, KKK, even things yeah, like that. Yeah. I I I study Latin America, and so there are other examples in Latin American history of groups of yeah thugs who go around. Killing people, brutalizing people, intimidating people, smashing windows. Not just because it's fun, not just because it's a good political tactic that might get them stuff that they want, but because it will build new men. <laughs> so so there are, are there any other key uh, constituencies of the far right or, 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 you know, have we hit them all? I mean, I probably sticking with just, you know. These two is probably good for an intro session. Okay. Well, there's so I want to close with 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 another big question. That's a that's something that's kind of weird about the story that you've been telling, and that's that part of 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 these uh, the positive story of the right wing that you've been telling is something that's very local focused. Yes. It's about returning to the roots of my country, uh, in the time when things were good. Mm -hmm. uh, you, we didn't mention racism, but I think that, 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 that there's a certain answer to that. Who are we question that's very much who we are is whoever was here like 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, everybody else does not. Or whoever was socially problem. dominant. Or whoever was socially dominant. Yeah. Um, who should have power is whoever uh, has always had power. Here. Yes. It's a local story. Blood and soil. Like stuff. Yeah. Like, there's something very, very local about this. But you're telling the story as a global story. It, yeah. you're, you're, you're talking about different right-wing groups interacting with each other across national boundaries. You're talking about ideology moving from, from France into other places in Europe and then from Europe around the rest of the world. It's something that, like, there's some way in which it's, 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 it's a story that transcends borders. Mm-hmm. There's like a genus face nature to it. The right wing is both heavily local and also deeply involved in the rest of the world. How do you square those two things? Yeah, so part of the answer is I don't know. Uh, that's one of the central questions that I have as a scholar. 
Um, so check I, out your dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I available I, in twenty twenty five. Yeah. So, so I specifically study the Catholic rite. Yeah. Um, and I find it fascinating that you know you could base your nation's nationalism on an inherently universal institution. Catholic means Catholic literally means universal. Yeah, like yeah. the word. Um, but all but but there's there's so many other examples. Um, if if you're familiar with the left, uh, you you might know that there have been various quote internationals, uh, sort of like international committees of leftist political parties and groups that sort of get together and decide on strategy and stuff. Um, so these exist today. Um, like you know, the Labour Party in Britain is a member of such a council. Um, but also when the Soviet Union was around, uh, the common turn, the Communist International. Uh, was a way that they sort of like coordinated communist policy, and that was, but that was okay because that was, part of the, the new new world, part of the new project was a global project. Yeah, the left is explicitly global. Yeah, Mussolini tried to found a fascist international. Yeah, to get fascist parties from around the world to come to Rome. Yeah. and to talk about fascism, and they, you know, they had a couple meetings and never really caught on. Um, but yeah, the, there is a sort of like question at the heart of this. How can you be a nationalist and believe that your nation is that your nationalism is founded on something universal, like Western civilization, um, or something that you think is universal, for example, right? Um, another, but another, you know, as a as a scholar or somebody looking from the outside, one potential answer to this question about universality would be to acknowledge that that. Like to go back to what we what we were talking about at the beginning of this of this session, um, that the right and the left emerged as answers to questions that are pretty universal. Yeah. Um, what do you do about the poor? How should the government be structured? What is the relationship between the church and the state? And so, who, the, who are we? Who are we? Yeah. Who, who is the nation? Who is in and who is out? And so, the fact that that just as the left's answers to those questions appeal to people around the world, the fact that the right broadly conceived with broadly similar answers also appeals to people around the world, it shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. It should be pretty obvious. Great. Well, well thank you very much for joining me uh, today. Uh, Craig, you might have a podcast coming soon yourself. Yes. Yeah. So the plan is very soon to start a podcast called 15 Minutes of Fascism. Uh, a weekly podcast is just going to be a quick news update about what's going on in the world in terms of fascist politics and some historical antecedents that you might want to use to understand uh, that very recent past. So if you at dinner parties want to actually be knowledgeable about fascism, um, listen to Craig's upcoming podcast. We will uh, uh, drop a link in the show notes when it comes out. Thank you very much to Craig. Um, thank you very much to the listeners. Uh, for uh, listening. Thank you to all your in-laws for sharing the show uh, amongst your coffee clatches. If you have an in-law, tell them about the show. It is our number one constituency. Uh, if you like the show, uh, don't just tell your in-laws, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on Twitter, add us to lists, do all those sorts of things that you do to bits of media that you like. Uh, final thank you to Duncan Barton, who did our image, and to Jonathan Lear, who did our music. We will be back next week, I think about uh, the history of the Lebanese Civil War. I'll speak to you then.